Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The 30 Years' War by When Diplomacy Fails, Episode 6. What God hath conjoined, then, let no man separate. I am the husband, and all the whole isle is my lawful wife. I am the head, and it is my body. I am the shepherd, and it is my flock. I hope, therefore, no man will be so unreasonable as to think that I, that am a Christian king under the gospel, should be a polygamist and husband to two wives, that I, being the head, should have a divided and monstrous body, or that being the shepherd, to so fair a flock, whose fold hath no wall to hedge it but the four seas, should have my flock parted in two. The King of England and Scotland had spoken. It was a crisp, cool day on the 19th of March, 1604, and King James the First and Sixth had laid down the challenge, as well as the justification, for the unlikely union between Scotland and England two entities which, only a generation before, had been at one another's throats. Unions under a common monarch were not unheard of in the 17th century. Poland-Lithuania had fused itself together under this arrangement in the 14th century and liked the idea so much that they advanced it even further to a real union in 1569. If those two states of Poland and Lithuania, Lithuania a formerly pagan duchy, another Poland, being a Catholic kingdom, if they could set aside their differences and combine themselves together, then why not those two kingdoms on the island of Britain, Scotland and England? James continued in his efforts to persuade his audience, with a note that, Even as little brooks lose their names by running and falling into great rivers, so by the conjunction of rivers, little kingdoms in one, are all these private differences and questions swallowed up. Through such a metaphor, the new king implied that any outstanding issues or grievances between the two old enemies would be subsumed into the healing balm which was this union. The conclusion was reached then that 
Only those unable to live in a well-governed commonwealth and delighting to fish in troubled waters would wish to hinder this work which God in my person have already established. James's declared dedication to peace wasn't meant merely to refer to the potential conflicts arising between Scotland and England on matters of sovereignty, history or religion, though. The new King of Great Britain, a term which his courtiers coined, and which included Scotland, England and that putrid little island of barbarians to the west of us, was equally committed to the mission of making peace with Spain. Five months after this speech to Parliament was made, the Treaty of London had brought peace between England and Spain after a 19-year war. Peace with Spain had been a hot topic in the twilight years of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and especially once the Peace of Vervon was signed between France and Spain in 1598. With France absent from the conflict, and with the rebellion against English authority in Ireland more than occupying English resources and energies, there was a sense that England's position would be greatly improved if she could settle with that old Spanish foe. After the initial flurry of activity in the war, seen in English support of the Dutch rebels, that famous defeat of the Armada in 1588, and the less famous and failing English Armada the following year, the Anglo-Spanish conflict had mostly been confined to the New World and hadn't produced much fruit for English strategists. In fact, so tumultuous and in a sense depressing was the last decade of Elizabeth's rule, that it has been labelled by some as a second reign, distinguished from the first by the lack of progress made in foreign policy or in the advancement of English interests. The 1590s were, in the words of one historian, a decade of unusual hardship reflected in the political and literary culture of weariness with the old Queen's rule. Now, we're not here to assess the success of Elizabeth's reign or the happiness of our courtiers, but the turn in English foreign policy around the time of Elizabeth's death in 1603 does deserve some investigation. As recently as 1597, don't forget, Spain had been at war with a coalition of England, France and the Dutch. These three powers were far from natural allies, being held together chiefly by the fear of Spanish power, but holding multiple diverging opinions on other matters, such as whether it was acceptable to still trade with Madrid while in a state of war with her. This question remained an important one because of the Spanish predominance in the New World, and trade with Spain was far more lucrative than any fledgling arrangement made in the Indies. Trade had been in place between England and Spain since before the Norman conquests, and by the 16th century, business was booming to such an extent that even royal pronouncements on embargoes, or temporary trading spats, did not reduce the appetite. English cloth, grain, tin and lead were exchanged for wine, fruit, oil and increasingly, coins, largely minted from New World silver. With the Dutch and Flemish ports coming under increasing strain as the Dutch revolt progressed, it became far more lucrative to trade with the Spanish directly. Royal pronouncements on restrictions in trade were ignored by many coastal officials who held English goods in contracts, even if they were technically illegal, in high esteem. One example is given of a merchant named John, who hailed from London and who illegally sold his ship's cargo at Bayona, a port town in northwest Spain, in 1571. While docked in port, the local justice came on board his ship and obligingly assured John 
that if any commandment should come from the king for the arresting of any English ships, he should have twenty-four hours' warning. As much as a history of mutually beneficial trade might have existed, England had been included in some diplomatic schemes of Philip II, most notably when the marriage contract between himself and Queen Mary was developed in 1554. While much had changed since that time, fifty years later, King James would have known that Spain had not, and could not, always be the enemy of England, especially if the commercial and strategic interests of Britain were to be assured. Far better it would be to begin his reign with a new Spanish relationship, based upon mutual agreement and compromise. He met opposition to this approach from some courtiers who found it hard to break with the old policy of hostility towards Spain for economic, cultural and religious reasons, but James won out in the end. By 1604, the continent was opening up, and its rulers were more aware of the opportunities at stake in the New World than they had been in 1585, when the war between England and Spain properly began. The Indies were enormously valuable to Spain for trade and royal revenues. One historian noted that, The clear annual profit from the Indies in the 1590s was around 8 million pesos, an appreciable amount by contemporary standards, perhaps one quarter the total crown revenues of Spain, and was apparently only about part that was not already or in large part encumbered before it was received. France, England and the Dutch had never been able to match the Spanish monopoly on the New World's opportunities, just as they had never recognised Spain's right to an unchallenged presence there. When Spain combined with Portugal in 1580, though, Philip II was able to claim a genuinely unrivaled hold over the fruits of the New World, as well as a hold over the merchant marine necessary to police and carry these fruits back home. English, Dutch and French privateers took it upon themselves to seize some of this wealth for themselves, but no piratical activities were as wildly successful as those made famous by Sir Francis Drake. In the background to this activity was a latent competition between all European powers for better markets and opportunities, and this competition would only intensify as the years progressed. The alliance with its competitors in France and the Dutch had therefore been a means to an end for England, and that end had been the defeat of Spain. With neither group able to defeat the other though, and with resources intensely strained on both sides, it was hardly surprising that the French, under their new king Henry IV, bowed out of the contest in 1598, followed by a degree of soul-searching on the English side. Even at its peak, wrote one historian, the war with Spain, did not command the total support of a united bellicose population, and in particular, men who would spend their lives in trade did not see England and Spain as locked in a cosmic struggle of ideologies. The war had long ceased to be profitable, and a train of thought put it that with Elizabeth and Philip II dead, and new sovereigns in both kingdoms eager to make their mark, peace should not be too difficult to come by. James I, as we have seen, was as eager to portray the union of Scotland and England as divinely ordained as he was to recast the looming peace negotiations with Spain as part of his divinely ordained mission. For this mission to be successful though, English propagandists would have to get to work and would have to paint James's reign as one of peace and James himself as the king of peace. The goal in these efforts to reimagine the Stuart king was not only to urge patriotic citizens to value the king's image as a peacemaker, 
but also to draw attention to the advantages of being citizens of a peaceful nation, as one urging put it. Pray to Almighty God to make his majesty as careless of war as he from time to time in his great judgment shall find peace to be necessary, his people and subjects ever obedient to all his designs and appointments, either in war or peace, and his majesty himself blessed with long life, health and ability to undergo either, as it shall seem best to the divine majesty. Amen. James may well have had grand ideas for making peace, and Philip III of Spain may have been eager to conclude his father's war as well, but the factors which enabled both men to make this peace had not developed by their own making. One of the commonly cited factors compelling England to make peace, that ending of the Franco-Spanish War in May 1598, which we mentioned already, was not as critically important in a physical sense as is often supposed. This was because King Henry IV, as we saw in the last episode, never ceased to compete with the Habsburgs or make headaches for them, even if he was technically at peace with both branches of the family. The psychological impact on the English was far more impressive though, since they now felt the sting of being alone against Spain, with only the beleaguered Dutch left to carry the war on land. In actual fact, arguably the most important factor in favour of peace was one which was created in the twilight months of Philip II's life. Understanding that the war with the Dutch was not winnable in its current state, the ailing Philip II aimed to approach the situation differently, and he appointed governors of the Spanish Netherlands to rule in the name of Spain. This division of Spanish authority was revolutionary, but it was not total. Madrid would still have the final say in whatever policy was taken, and she maintained her right to govern the region, including the rebellious Dutch portion, whether the rebels in that part recognised that right or not. But this was a kind of concession on Philip's part, because he was imparting his authority to a new regime, which would rule in Madrid's name, in a region which had all. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market always been directly connected to and administered by the Spanish crown. That this authority was to be held by his daughter Isabella and her cousin, soon to be her husband, 
the Cardinal Archduke, Albert of Habsburg, certainly lessened any reluctance the old king would have had for reducing the total powers of his son. Philip's genuine hope seems to have been that by granting this autonomy to the Spanish Netherlands, and by granting it the public face of his daughter and nephew, Spanish popularity in the Netherlands region as a whole would increase, and the rebellious northerners would return to the Spanish fold. It was, of course, a naive hope, not least because of the terms with which the new regime in the Spanish Netherlands would be forced to work with. Isabella and Albert, as well as their subjects, were forbidden from trading with the West or the East Indies, and were also forbidden from trading with the Dutch rebels, as the Spanish-Portuguese unit was also forbidden from trading with the Dutch. These restrictions, which harmed the Spanish Netherlands economically and dampened any prospect of a recovery, also forced the Dutch to take piratical measures to secure their own economic interests. The States General has decided, said a contemporary Dutch historian in 1614, to keep their seamen at work, to fit out a fleet or armada, and therewith to go against Spain and the Spanish islands, and to pounce upon and engage the Indies fleet, going and coming. The Dutch fleet achieved much less than was hoped, but the trade voyages to America and the East Indies, already begun, multiplied many times over, and the Dutch became even more of a menace than they had been before Philip II's optimistic effort to reduce Dutch hostility. However, now that the regime of Isabella and Albert had been installed in Brussels, this regime, deemed the Archdukes by historians, distinguished themselves far more effectively than Philip had ever expected. We're going to pick up our story of the Archdukes in a minute, but before we do, I want to allude to something that I mentioned earlier on in the episode. I mentioned that Poland and Lithuania formed a union in the 14th century, and then they made that union even more official in 1569, becoming the Commonwealth. If you would like to know more about Poland and Lithuania, and yes, I realise this is a pretty woeful segue, but if you would like to know more about Poland and Lithuania, look no further than Poland is not yet lost. But Poland is not yet lost is a series that looks at the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century, a century which began with the Poles looking pretty reasonably strong despite several setbacks in the centuries before, but they ended the century literally not existing as a state, because in 1795, Poland, Lithuania, the Commonwealth, was absorbed by Austria, Prussia and Russia. The story of how Poland went from a reasonably powerful European state to not existing at all is one which, I feel, hasn't been done much justice in the historical literature, and hasn't been addressed at all in podcast format. At least, not yet. So I'm going to try and tackle this task, and I hope you'll join me for that. If you do want to join me for that, if you'd like a little bit of 18th century history in your life, and if you're a bit weary with just having one episode every two weeks, gasp, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, Click on the link in the description below, and for a fiver a month you can be accessing this series, which amounts to about an hour of extra content each month, and also listen to these episodes of the 30 Years War that you're listening to right now, free from ads, either put in by Acast or put in halfway through the episode here by myself, and overall your listening experience will improve. That fiver will also get you the scripts of Poland is Not Yet Lost, so if you're one of those super history nerds like myself who likes to read while also listening, make sure you check out that fiver membership. 
It's called the History Friend Membership, but there's memberships available at the $1 and $2 levels as well. Everyone will get something no matter how small their contribution each month, so make sure you check that out. That again is patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Thanks so much for your support so far, guys. It's because of it that I'm able to do this podcast while also doing my PhD. But for now, let's take the story back to the Archdukes, the Spanish, and everything else besides. Although the centre of Spain's universe in the early 17th century resided in its Iberian Union, and although the most important threads of Spanish diplomacy led to Madrid, many of Spain's diplomatic activities took place in the Spanish Netherlands. In our time period, there could be counted more high-level Spanish negotiations and international conferences involving Spanish interests in Brussels than in Madrid. A good deal of the actual policy-making done in the name of the Spanish Habsburgs took place in Brussels as well. How do we account for this fact? Was Brussels usurping the authority of Madrid? Well, not exactly. It would be more accurate to state that Brussels acted in Madrid's name and faithfully for her interests. One of the most straightforward reasons for this transferal of power, yet the one which mattered most at this stage of history when European travel was far from polished, was the geographical considerations. Spanish Netherland territory was like an anchor in an area where many of the era's most important events involving Spain took place. The most obvious of these was the conflict with the Dutch, but the Spanish were also on hand with their army of Flanders during the Ulick-Cleave crisis, which we looked at in the last episode. In episodes to come, we'll see how Flanders and the centre of Spanish administration in Brussels aided the Habsburg interest during the war for the Lower Palatinate. But the opportunities provided by the Spanish centre in Europe's centre of activity did not end there. The central position of the Spanish Netherlands in Europe also made the region the communications centre of the Habsburg world. Through Brussels, Madrid received not just its correspondence from England, correspondence which was of profound importance so long as both countries were at war. Brussels was also the gate through which the communications of Northern Europe and Scandinavia, as well as the Holy Roman Emperor, passed. On occasion, when speed was of the necessity, even the dispatches from Rome itself would be filtered through Brussels, a fact which put the government of the Archdukes in much closer contact with events, both in the Habsburg world and elsewhere, than Madrid could ever hope to be. The Archdukes also were in a much better position to effectively deal with them. An interesting point, which a historian on the Habsburgs, Charles H. Carter, made in the 1960s, was that once the Spanish Netherlands had been placed in the hands of the Archdukes, it was often more convenient for Madrid to follow the lead of Brussels and to allow the Spanish Netherlands' tail to wag the Iberian Spanish dog. This was because, as Charles H. Carter perceived, While Spanish Habsburg policy can still be spoken of properly as mainly Spanish policy, a conspicuous amount of that policy was formulated and executed by Brussels and not Madrid. In some, the government of the Netherlands being more concerned than Spain in some matters, being more conveniently on the scene in others, and having a right to at least a voice in most could and did take a large hand, often on its own, in the making and conducting of Spanish policy. Carter is careful in not allowing this idea of Spanish Netherlands autonomy to get out of hand, 
There was no anticipation at this point of Belgian independence, just as surely as it was not quite accurate to dismiss the Archdukes merely as sheep to Spain's shepherd. The situation of the Spanish Netherlands was unusual, and its status would remain so right up to the point of its reimagining in 1830 as the Kingdom of Belgium. At the turn of the 17th century, the status of the Spanish Netherlands had not developed according to a predestined plan. The region was the rump of what had once been Spanish Burgundy, granted to the Habsburgs and then handed to the King of Spain by Philip II's father, Charles V, in the mid-16th century. The Netherlands had been cleaved in two by the Dutch Revolt, with a mostly Catholic South and mostly Protestant North making religious judgments easier, but not universal. If the religious question was far from straightforward in the Netherlands, then the question of loyalty to the Spanish crown was far simpler. The Dutch rebels had formed themselves into a republic with the States General as their master, while the remnants of the old Netherlands in the south remained loyal to the Spanish king and obeyed the orders of his representative, normally a governor. In fact, there had been a governor in place in Brussels when Philip II conceived of his plan to marry his daughter into the Spanish Netherlands position, but when he had died, his brother Albert assumed the duty in his stead, and he made haste for Brussels. Where the affairs of the Spanish Netherlands is relevant to our narrative in this episode is in the surprisingly active role that Brussels played in bringing about peace between England and Spain, which had seemed so long in coming and so desired by many sides as well. Albert and Isabella had conducted a healthy diplomatic relationship with King James and his Queen Anne for many years, even before James came to England's throne. Since James had never been at war with Spain in his capacity as King of Scotland, there was immediately an opportunity for peace as soon as he assumed the English throne, but the critical ingredient of a suitable channel to negotiate this peace remained. Archduke Albert took the initiative in this respect, dragging a reluctant Spain behind him, in the words of one historian, and forcing Spain to adapt when he sent a body of peace commissioners to London. Spain could not be seen to fall behind its satellite's initiatives, and so the actions of the Archduke, as much as the existing relationship between him and England's new king, helped facilitate an end to the Anglo-Spanish War. As the daughter of the King of Spain, Archduchess Isabella would thus be a reigning sovereign in Brussels, but her actual ruling powers would necessarily devolve onto her husband, the Cardinal Archduke Albert. The two cousins were married, and about the time of the Peace of Vervon, in summer 1598, shortly before Philip II's death, a formal session was made of the Burgundian lands. The Spanish Netherlands was now in the hands of the Archdukes, even though they of course considered Spanish or overarching Habsburg interests before considering the happiness of the stunted Spanish Netherlands population, which had been laid low in the 1590s by the dwindling Spanish answer to the increasing Dutch successes. Madrid always seemed to need more of everything from her beleaguered Flemish subjects. More soldiers, more money, more taxes, more generous trading arrangements, more sequestered resources. Everything was directed towards fighting the tripod of hostility, which was focused from The Hague, London and Paris, but it was fortunate that in summer 1598 and in spring 1604, two of these combatants were eliminated from this race. This would leave the Dutch rebels alone against Spanish might for the first time in over two decades, and it would also provide ample opportunities for the Archdukes to distinguish themselves in war, as they had done with, diplomatically, 
orchestrating the peace with England. Yet during this period, the Habsburgs were also distracted by another war, and this one with an old enemy more dangerous than any other than they had faced in the West. In the next episode, we will introduce you to the critical Eastern theatre, where the Ottoman Empire loomed and threatened the Austrian Habsburgs with utter destruction. I hope you'll join me for that, history friends, patrons and PhD pals. But until then, my name is Zach and this has been the sixth episode of the 30 Years War series. Thanks so much for joining me and listening in, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.